a song like that really personalizes the message of Christmas, doesn't it? I mean, it, it looks at it from the viewpoint of a mother looking at her baby and wondering, thinking about, what mother doesn't have this experience looking at their child and thinking, what is, what is my child going to be one day? And all of us as parents, you know, we raise our kids, and, and man, that, that, that makes it very real. It makes it very personal. And I tell you, there's no subject, obviously, that we could sing songs about than Jesus Christ that ought to become more personal to us. That's the subject that we can all make very personal. And actually, this month, what we're doing is we're taking some time and we're looking at some lyrics of well-known Christmas songs. And, and we're just pointing out the biblical basis and doing some Bible study to just confirm the truths of the lyrics of the songs that we know so well. Because a song is a powerful thing. The words stick in your mind. And if you're not careful, sometimes you just sing words and you kind of don't really think about what they mean. But what I hope to do this month, every week when we get together, is pay a little more attention to what they really mean so that for the rest of your lives, when you sing at least these songs that we're talking about, man, it'll really resonate with you. And you'll remember and you'll think, what is God really communicating? And how is it that these songwriters got a hold of that and then put it into this kind of a form? So this week, uh, no surprises, the song that we're going to be looking at is It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. And uh, so, you know, full disclosure from the beginning. Because what I'm going to do this week is just kind of begin to, you know, share with you the different stanzas of the song, and then we'll do a little study. We'll look and see what it has to say about each one of these things. The first stanza of It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, does that actually pop up on the screen or not? Do we have that first stanza? Or I'll just read it to you if it doesn't come up on the screen. Anyways, the message of the carols is kind of the theme. Okay, the first stanza goes like this. It came upon the midnight clear, that glorious song of old, from angels bending near the earth to touch their harps of gold. Peace on the earth, goodwill to men, from heaven's all-gracious king, the word in solemn, the world in solemn stillness lay to hear the angels sing. And so like so many of the songs that we sing at Christmas time, this theme, peace on the earth and goodwill toward man, I mean, that's, that's a theme, right? I mean, we hear that over and over again, and, and certainly it's repeated in this one as well. It's a common theme. It comes from Luke chapter 2. In the Christmas story, verses 13 and 14 specifically, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward man. And this story is told throughout churches, in homes, throughout our country, throughout the world, in referring to the birth announcement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, today in our daily lives, culturally speaking, here in the United States anyway, I mean, it is true, isn't it, that just generally speaking, that people do tend to show more goodwill towards one another than during other times of the year. I mean, it's amazing. People will hold the door open for you and say Merry Christmas and be nice to you and, and you know, just be much more accommodating in December. And then, you know, January, well, you know, <laughs> back to normal, open your own door. You know, I don't care. Uh, it, it's kind of funny. Um, so it is kind of interesting how this message, you know, is, um, it is, it is true. It kind of hits us more at this time of the year, but, but that's, that's not what Luke 2 is about. It's not that once a year we're a little bit nicer to our neighbors. That, that's really not what it's about. Um, in the song lyric, it says, peace on the earth, goodwill to men, 
from heaven's all-gracious king. You know, the idea is, is that peace comes to the earth from the Lord. Goodwill toward man comes to the earth from the Lord, right? It's not just us toward one another. And uh, it certainly doesn't come from the government, right? I mean, it doesn't come from redistribution of wealth. I mean, it doesn't come from, our goodwill ultimately comes from the Lord giving it to us. And, and this is a theme through all the Christmas songs, basically. We see it over and over again with, with good reason. Uh, historically, going back to the time of the original announcement a couple of thousand years ago, right? So what did the people do with this great news? The Messiah has come, the Christ child who eventually grows up and carries out his earthly ministry of nothing but perfect, sinless miraculous perfection the fulfillment of the scriptures offering salvation doing physical miracles healing people restoring things after all of that what is the response of the people to this great news 2,000 years ago crucify him that's the that's the response he has a demon he usurps the authority of Caesar he doesn't even pay his taxes get rid of him He's kind of cramping our style because they had their thing going in their society and Jesus Christ shows up as an authority to cast down their authority and they didn't like it. And that's why they responded that way because mankind is broken. We have a sinful nature. We are sinners and we're selfish. We don't want to give God the glory first. Remember Luke 2.14? Glory to God in the highest, then on earth peace, goodwill towards man. You see, God has an order of things. You give him glory first, and then the results come into your life and ultimately onto planet earth. But too many people today just want the stuff. Hey, Jesus, give me what I want. And give me it when I want it. Because if you don't, well, forget you, man. And that is a common sentiment. It's a problem. That's not how it works with God. Uh, Jesus made it very clear in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 31. Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? What presents will we get? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Gentiles representing those outside the family of faith at that time, Israel. Those are the things the Gentiles, the unbelieving people of this world, seek after that stuff. What do I get? For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all those things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You see, there's an order of things. You give glory to God first, and then ultimately there are amazing benefits that come as a result. And so as we're going to see as we get into our Bible study is that the cool thing about the song, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, is that this story, this, this commonly referred to story, it repeats itself over and over again throughout history. As we walk through the stanzas of this song, it comes into modern day and it goes into yet a future time. And so the title I've given this message is God's Recurring Invitation. 
to man. Because the invitation that showed up when Jesus showed up a couple thousand years ago, you'll see in a second, it's here today. And, well, it's going to continue into the future. It's a recurring invitation. And that's why I love the message of it came upon a midnight clear. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so very thankful that you have communicated to us in your word everything that is perfect and pure and holy. And I pray as we study your word that you would guide us. I pray that you would open our eyes to see, but not just to learn some new things, but I pray that you would use your word as it is intended to be the mirror of our soul. That as we look into your word, we would first and foremost, each of us see ourselves as you see us. And wherever we might find something lacking, that we would just humbly submit ourselves, ask for forgiveness, and glorify you with all our hearts and minds and souls. Lord, we love you. We are so, so thankful that you came to rescue us when you came to this earth originally as a baby and ultimately our Savior. And and thank you, words are not enough, but Lord, we offer you our lives. Speak to us, mold us, make us who you want us to be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So coming into the present day, point number one, your personal priority is going to be the focus. What is your priority in your personal life as we come into this story as we're looking at it today? So this whole glory to God, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Okay, 2,000 years ago, that was then. But what you need to realize, and this is sub-point, letter A, God is still speaking. God continues to speak. And the song says such. The second stanza, and we'll sing it at the end of the morning, goes like this. Still through the cloven skies, they come with peaceful wings unfurled. They, the angels, they're still trying to communicate this message. Still through the cloven skies, they come with peaceful wings unfurled. And still their heavenly music floats over all the weary world. Above its sad and lowly plains, they bend on hovering wing. And ever o'er its babble sounds, the blessed angels sing now you know i say this a lot and i mean it if you're like me first off apologies to you but i think of things you know the way i think of them i kind of have a weird skeptical how's that working out i have that kind of as a knee-jerk reaction when i hear or read things and a song is just a song it's poetry it's put to music it's beautiful um and so i you know i read the second stanza and i'm like Okay, you know, the angels are still, have their, you know, the wings and the song. And I'm thinking, I hadn't happened lately. I mean, can't really recall waking up in the morning and kind of seeing that sight. I don't know about you. So maybe it requires a little bit of a Bible study on angels. So let's do that. Let's spend a little time seeing what God actually has to say about these things called angels And what we can learn about them, because what we'll find is that it's a pretty amazing revelation of truth. Well, first and foremost, let me just say that that angels serve as messengers. They do. They serve as messengers. They are sent from God with a message to people. Uh, You know the story maybe in uh, Luke chapter 1, setting this thing up. We have the story of the angel Gabriel, who comes and he announces that Elizabeth is going to have a child, and that child is going to be John the Baptist. 
and Zecharias is the father, and, and the angel comes, Gabriel is his name, right? And he, and he announces this, that he brings a message. You're going to have a child, and he's going to be special, okay? That was an angel that did that. He's a messenger. He's bringing a message. Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 7. It says, And of the angels he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? If you jump down to verse 14, it says, Are they, still referring to the angels, not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? So God has these creations, and they're called angels, and they are messengers, they are ministers, and they are spiritual And so these spiritual ministers, these messengers that are sent, they are sent to carry a message and to serve those who are the believing population of this world, those who will be the heirs of salvation. The book of Revelation has its own insight into this. At the end of chapter number 1 and rolling into the beginning of chapter number 2, Revelation 1.20, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. You remember this? The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. We have some some pictorial representation going on here. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Chapter 2, he begins writing a letter. And the letter starts, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And it goes on. So Jesus Christ, the author of this letter, refers to himself as the one who has the seven stars, is in the midst of the seven candlesticks, which have just been defined for you as the angels among the churches. So he writes the letter addressed to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And you think, what is that all about? Who's that guy? Do we have an angel in our church that's assigned to us? Do we, we, we talk about guardian angels. That term isn't in your Bible, but the idea that there seems to be some assignment going on, that's kind of an interesting concept, right? There are some Bible commentators who think that the angel of the church in Ephesus, for example, is just a way of referring to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. I don't know. I think it's kind of probably hard to say for sure that that's what that is, but without question, Whatever's going on here, right, whatever's going on here, Jesus Christ is trying to communicate something to the church. And however it is he's communicating to the church, there's some sort of an angel in the middle. Via an angel, the message is going to be delivered. Can you see that? Regardless of exactly how that plays out, can you see that? I mean, that's, that's what we need to understand. And the fact that the angels are metaphorically, right, referred to as stars. Well, listen, the Bible, I mean, the Bible's the book. So, you know, if you want to go tour the homes of the stars, you're going to go to Los Angeles, Los Angeles, the city of angels, right? I mean, you just can't beat that thing. That's the kind of thing. Listen, God is trying to communicate to us. There's something to this angel thing that is bigger than just you know, the, the heavenly winged, you know, harp playing, song singing, you know, although that's probably cool. One thing's for sure, absolutely guaranteed for sure, and that's angels are also sons of God. That's something you need to understand. Angels absolutely 
are referred to as sons of God. In fact, in the Old Testament, four times you have that phrase, sons of God. And we're going to look at all of them. And in each of those cases, what you see is it's referring to angels. Now, I'm going to give them to you in chronological order as they would have occurred throughout history. Okay, so the first one would have been Job 38. And to set up the stage, we're going to start in verse number four. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Job, there's a lot of arguing and bickering going on between Job and his friends about whose fault it is that Job is in this calamity. And finally, at the end, by the time chapter 38 shows up, finally God is jumping in, and God is going to set the record straight, and he's going to kind of rebuke Job and just clear off a place and tell everybody what's really going on. And so this is the voice of God as we come into Job 38 and verse 4, and he says to Job, Where was thou, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? So you got the context is the actual creation. Where were you when I created everything? You think you know everything. Declare if thou hast understanding. Then he goes on and he lists a whole bunch of the things that God did in the process of while he's creating. You come to verse number 7, still in the same context. When, in the creation event, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Well, at this point, and if we could call it God steps out on creation morning. He hasn't made man yet, right? I mean, ultimately, we go through that six days of creation, and man is created on the sixth day. So there's no question that these sons of God referred to as heavenly rejoicing at the moment God speaks into creation everything that is. Well, those are angelic beings. There's no question about it. You go back in the, in the book of Job, but it's later in the actual chronology of history. Job chapter 1 and verse number 6, the story of Job starts out. It says, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Virtually the exact same thing is repeated in Job chapter 2 and verse number 1. And so what you have is you have this meeting in the heavenlies where Satan and a bunch of angels stand directly before the Lord and they begin to have a dialogue about, hey, you know, Job doesn't just serve you because he's so awesome. It's because you've protected him. You've given him everything. And then they go into that negotiation where God gives Satan just a little bit of room to cause some trouble in Job's life, but just a little bit of room. And so what's going on in Job chapter 1, verse 6, and Job chapter 2, verse 1? That's a a snapshot from the heavenlies. That's not anything. We're not talking about believing people with Satan go and present themselves before the Lord. These are angels. And then the last would be Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And so we have, And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, verse 2, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now this is a whole other fun Bible study we're not going to get into, and I know that there's some people who vehemently reject the idea that the sons of God that take daughters of men and have offspring with them in Genesis chapter 6 are angels, but they have to be angels. And, and again, we will get into, after the first of the year, a new Bible study series, and we're going to walk through the book of Second Peter. And when we do, we'll see very, I'll prove it to you. It, it's just as clear as can be. But some people want to say the sons of God are the godly line of children that came from Seth, the son of Adam and Eve. And the daughters of men, I guess those are 
ungodly chicks. I don't know. And if you read in Genesis 6, their offspring at that time, they were giants. So they had this freak offspring that were giants. Well, listen, Christian and non-Christian people marry and have babies all the time. Are all their babies giants? Of course not. That's not what we're talking about. We have some sort of a very strange, you're like, wow, this is like sci-fi. This is crazy. I can't believe you really believe that. I'm just reading. Again, today's not the day we're proving it all, so, you know, you want to write your questions on the comment card. It's okay. We'll help you with that. We really will. The point is this. That there is no reference in all of the Old Testament, not one, where the sons of God are human beings. There, there isn't any. They're angels. And why do I say, why do I go to all that trouble? Because it's important for you to understand how it's going to roll into present day and our priority and what God is really doing. Because practically speaking then, if angels are sons of God, well, we know in a New Testament context now, we also, by faith in Jesus Christ, are sons and daughters of God, right? So in a sense, we're kind of like the angels, right? And how do you, de- how do you really define what is a son of God and what is not a son of God? A son of God is a creation, a direct creation of God. So we as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, if any man be in Christ in 2 Corinthians 5, he is what? A new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. It says in Galatians 3 that we are no longer Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. In Christ, we are sons of God. We are a new creation like the angels, a direct creation of God of God. You're a new person if you receive Christ as your Savior. It's an amazing transformation that takes place. And the Bible makes it very clear that that is the title given to believers. John chapter 1 and verse 12. But as many as received him, Jesus Christ, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So how do you get in on this great deal? You believe on his name. The same human author John writes, 1 John chapter 3, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Can you imagine when you understand who the sons of God are and you ponder what manner of love our heavenly Father has chosen to freely bestow upon us to make us like that? And he's just blown away. And he goes on in verse 2, Beloved, well, let me finish verse 1. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. So, verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. If you have surrendered your heart and life to Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, now, currently, you are a new creation. You are a son of God. Although it doth not yet appear what we shall be because we're not, you know, we're not all glorified and floating around and playing harps and stuff. Not sure if we're ever going to do that. But anyway, it doesn't, look, you get saved, you receive Christ, you are immediately a new creature. Do you look the same as you looked yesterday? Yeah, you look the same. It doth not yet appear what you shall be 
Oh, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we'll see him as he is. When he appears, how's he going to be? He's going to be glorified. How are you going to be when he appears? Oh, glorified. Like the angels. Like the angels. So what does that mean to us? What does all that mean? Well, we're going back to the lyric. It says, still, the angels are communicating this message. Still. So obviously, God today is still trying to communicate his good news to all of us, right? He uses messengers. That would be us. He sends the sons of God as his messengers to bring his message to a world that desperately needs it. He continues to do that. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. So today, still, God is speaking. And he's crying out and he's declaring his message and he has sent his messengers. He has sent you and me out into this world to declare the truth so that others can hear it. And oh, in hearing, they can then believe. And in believing, they can call on the Lord and in calling on the Lord, be saved. It's a direct prescription. I'm an engineer. I love the way that's set up. It's as clear as clear can be. But God is still sending his messengers, me and you, so that others can know. It's the greatest thing in the world. Look in Proverbs chapter 1. What we have here is a wisdom is, is personified. You take this, this term wisdom, this level of, of knowledge and understanding is, is given a character as though it's a, it's a person. And some want to say it's Jesus Christ, and some want to say it's simply a personification of the Word of God, and neither of those is necessarily wrong, but it's, it's very beautiful in how it's written. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 20. Wisdom crieth without. She uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of the concourse, in the openings of the gates. In the city she uttereth her words, saying, How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you, and I will make known my words unto you. So wisdom is crying out, the word is still going out, and it's everywhere, and it's calling people saying, how long will you waste your lives on simplicity? How long will you be foolish and hate real knowledge? Turn from that situation, the Bible uses the word repent. And believe on me, I will pour out my spirit unto you. You will be a new creature, you will be saved. Certainly, God is still speaking to man. But the problem is, and you probably figured out the next blank, man's not listening. (laughs) God is crying out, right? But man's really not listening. As a whole, men are not listening. Third stanza of the song. Listen to this. 
Yet with the woes of sin and strife the world hath suffered long. Beneath the angel's strain have rolled 2,000 years of wrong. Bringing us into the present day, right? And man at war with man hears not the love song which they bring. Oh, hush the noise, ye men of strife, and hear the angels sing. That's right here in present day. He dated it 2,000 years after the original announcement of the angels. And he's saying that there's so much stuff going on, sin and strife and suffering and war, that people aren't hearing the message. Look, it's no surprise, right? The world is suffering today. People are suffering. There seem to be endless problems that are too big to solve. Sure, it refers to sin and strife, and we're going to look at that in a second, but man, everywhere you go, lying and cheating and stealing and corruption and politics, nobody trusts and big business and nobody trusts and you get into your favorite conspiracy theory if you want to about who's all behind it and how they're all doing it, but it's all doom and gloom and evil and people don't care anymore and they're not nice anymore and they, don't do, they only think about themselves anymore and there, there's constantly people out there trying to cheat you and lie to you and scam artists and, all, and you're like, man, are we ever, is it ever going to stop? Are we ever going to get out of this cycle that we're in and It just seems that over the last 2,000 years that man is ever perfecting his ability to sin, doesn't it? We're just getting better and better at it. And let me just tell you, that's a long time to do wrong. We could say 6,000 years, actually. It affects everything. It affects society. It affects your worldview. It affects your mindset. It affects your focus. It affects your ability to hear because these things become distractions to keep you from being able to hear the message of hope that God is trying to cry out into the streets. So let's break down a few of them. Sin. Okay, so general category, but let me just put it to you this way. The rampant sin that is hindering man's ability to hear God's voice It reminds me of the story that we alluded to earlier in Genesis chapter 6, just before the flood in Noah's days. And if you looked in Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6, you'll see that God was really sorry that he even wasted his time creating man, seeing how man turned out. I mean, the evil, wicked imaginations of man's heart were so terrible that it grieved God so deeply that he's like, man, I, I'm sorry, I even did this. And you know what's next. Worldwide flood destroys everything. Let's have a fresh start. Well, while that was going on, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 5, referring back to those days, calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. That for the hundred years it took him to build that ark, And it had never rained on the earth up until that time, and people mocked him and made fun of him. All along, Noah was a faithful preacher, a messenger of God, declaring God's message. But because of the evil imaginations of their heart continually, they couldn't hear it. 
So nobody listened, and nobody got on that ark except Noah's family. Nobody. God was speaking, but man wasn't listening. And they weren't listening because of their sin. Let's talk about strife. What is strife? Well, strife is disunity. It's, it's contention. It's hostility. It's rivalry. It's fighting. James chapter 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there's confusion and every evil work. The, the, the lifestyle that leads you to bitter envying and striving and fighting, you know where that comes from? It says that this wisdom is earthly, that's the world, sensual, that's what you feel, that's your flesh, and devilish. The world, the flesh, and the devil, those are the only three enemies a Christian has. That's where it comes from. James chapter 4, verse number 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? You ever wonder that? You ever wonder, where do all these wars come from? Well, come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. Boy, I mean, that's some tough language. Know ye not that friendship of the, the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And man, we work so hard to figure out, you know, how to get along, to go along, and how am I going to fit in with this world system, and Okay, I guess at some level you've got to live sort of a normal, balanced life, but for a Christian person who has moral standards and convictions, there's just some things about this world system that you just got to leave behind and live your life separate from that. Don't engage. Don't, don't, don't return like for like. Don't get involved in that because that leads you down a path of strife and fighting, and hostility, and contention, and heartburn, and stress, and anxiety, and medication, and trouble, and, and you'll never recover, and you'll never be free enough to just settle down for a second and listen. God is trying to communicate, but men won't hear. They won't hear. These are things that consume your mind and they consume your attention. They're just distractions. And there's other competing voices. And so the third point I put in is sounds. Back to that second stanza, it talked about the babble sounds. The sounds of babble. Well, just very generally, babbling, right, are just incomprehensible noise. They're just, they're just things that maybe aren't, they're, they're unintelligible. They're indistinguishable. It's just babbling, babble, babble, babble. You know, sometimes, you know, it's like the Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown cartoon, which is wah, 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 wah. After a while, you know, you're like, oh, okay, I'm here. I'm not even listening. I don't know what you're saying. 
And, and the world just, just does that to you. I mean, just the, the way that this thing is set up, don't you just get dull of hearing? Well, the devil kind of wants you dull of hearing so that you won't hear what he intends, what God intends for you to hear because God is still speaking. He, he has an invitation that is recurring over and over and over. And friends, you want to receive that invitation before it's too late for you. Because every day, it's too late for somebody. And don't let that be you. Let me phrase it to you this way, the way Jesus said it in Matthew eleven twenty eight: 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Isn't, isn't that attractive? Isn't that something you want desperately? To just finally find rest to your souls. Jesus offers that. He says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. So the songwriter says, oh, hush the noise, you men of strife, and hear the angels sing. God's messengers carry God's message and they're crying out in the street all the time. And we live in a noisy, noisy world. And there's time. We, we need to take the time to just hush the noise and let God speak. Can you hear him speak? Maybe this is your first time here. Maybe you come here every week but you've been so busy, you haven't slowed down long enough to hear. But God wants you to hear. He wants you to hear. Let's go to our second point, pointing towards the future. The song points toward the future and the final fulfillment of this prophecy, the final fulfillment of all the promises, all the things that were declared upon the birth of the Christ child. Ultimately, one day we know will be fulfilled. And so the fourth stanza goes like this. For lo, the days are hastening on by prophet bards foretold, when with the ever-circling years shall come the age of gold, when peace shall over all the earth its ancient splendors fling, and all the world give back the song which now the angels sing. You see, there's coming a day. There's coming a day. God said that some things are going to happen, and you can take it to the bank. They are going to happen. When we get into 2 Peter, eventually in chapter 3, we'll see how for generations and generations and generations, man has been saying, it's going to happen. And of course, it hadn't happened yet. So for generations and generations, there are other men who are scoffers who will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the beginning, they've been saying this, and it hadn't happened yet. Well, it hasn't happened, key word, yet. <laughs> It'll happen. It absolutely will happen. Uh, He hasn't missed a prophecy yet. He's not about to miss one now. So there's a prophetic witness for the coming of this kingdom, the ultimate fulfillment. We referred to this before, but it's so powerful, I want to do it again. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And often quoted at the Christmas time, as it should be, the child is the very son of God. But notice, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. 
you know, can, we, can, we can say this, right? We can say this? Can we say this in church? That's the government we're looking for, right? I don't care. I don't care. That's the government we're looking for. It'll be, there will be a government system that is 100% pure and righteous because it'll be on Jesus Christ's shoulders. He's setting up a kingdom. He will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and it'll be perfect. And his name shall be called Wonderful. His name shall be called Counselor. His name shall be called the Mighty God. His name shall be called the Everlasting Father. His name shall be called the Prince of Peace. Of the, notice, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. His government will ever and ever and ever increase. Just for fun beyond the limits of planet earth it will ever and ever and ever increase and with it peace that will ever and ever increase there shall be no there shall be no end upon the throne of david and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever have you ever let your mind wander if you go back and we're going to do this in just a second I want to talk about the ever-circling years. You go back to Adam and think, again, this is kind of the way my brain works. What if Adam and Eve never sinned? And, but they were to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, right? So if sorrow and pain and all that was multiplied in childbearing for ladies as a result of sin, and it was and is and they were to multiply physically, and yet if they never sinned, and oh, by the way, yeah, the wages of sin is death, so there would have been no death. I mean, you do the math. How long would it have taken before planet Earth, you know, kind of ran out of room? People's being born, <laughs> nobody's dying ever, 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 ever. We're running out of space. Well, Today we're not, by the way. Planet Earth has tons of space. But there would have run out of space, right? Well, forever, you know, is a long time. And ultimately it's going to come full circle. Another prophecy, Isaiah 54, verse 10. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. Go down to verse 13. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. Amen, hallelujah. It's going to happen. There's no question about it. It absolutely will happen. And like I was referring to with Adam, let's look at that now, this, the circle of human history. The lyric says, there shall come, there shall come this age of gold, Right? And we're going to get to these ever-circling years. So what's coming in the future is going to look a whole lot like what was before sin showed up. Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse number 2. And I, John, saw the whole holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Uh, Remember Emmanuel? What does that name mean? God with us. Anytime Jesus is located here, well, God is here because Jesus is, is God. And so God himself will ultimately set up this, what the songwriter calls age of gold, by showing up himself personally. Go down in Revelation 21 to verse 9. And there shall come unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talk with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So now we're getting some of the elements, right? Glory to God in the highest. Eventually, on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Verse 18, and the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. Never seen any gold like that before. Verse 22, and I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved only shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall be in no wise enter into it anything that defileth. Neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the future. You don't have to like it. You don't have to agree with it. It really doesn't matter. It is the future. It's what is going to happen. The good news is is you can get in on it. (laughs) So the ever-circling years then becomes this full cycle of human history that began in the Garden of Eden and ends up when the kingdom of God and heaven come together and land back on earth and ultimately propagate into into the universe. I want you to just listen to some of the characteristics. We we don't have time to prove all of these things. The, The prophecies are clear in the Old Testament and maybe some other time. We've done this in the past in this church. Some of the characteristics of this king kingdom that Jesus Christ will establish. Long life. Great health, healing of all food sources and water, the elements are all healed. They are all restored to their original intention. Animal life is all restored to its original intention. The lion lays down with the lamb, for example. There's peace. Fruitful childbearing. There's not problems in childbearing. There's not sterility. There's not the issues that we deal with. This is perfect utopian society. These are directly prophesied characteristics of what this coming kingdom is going to be like. Sounds a lot like Eden before sin. It will include the national salvation of the nation of Israel that will rule all the other nations as the head. It will have Jesus Christ ruling with a rod of iron and bringing in worldwide peace. 
Micah chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, that minor prophet said, And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations um, afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. There is coming a day. And I don't know about you, but, you know, ever since I clicked over on the high side of 50 years old, in the back of my mind, there's this, there's this clock ticking. I don't know about anybody else, but I never really heard that clock before. <laughs> it just keeps ticking. And the more it ticks and the more I view this wicked world that we all participate in, the more I cannot wait for that kingdom. I cannot wait. I am not as righteous, certainly, ridiculous statement, as the Lord. I am not as long-suffering as the Lord is, patiently waiting for more people to get saved. If it were up to me, we'd leave right now. We'd leave right now. But the Lord is far greater than you or I, and the Lord desires for more people to have time to be saved before it's too late. So we suffer on, and it's okay. We suffer on. But that is the kingdom. That's what it looks like. That's what it's going to be like. Romans chapter 8 has this sentiment in it, starting in verse 17. And if children then heirs, speaking of believers, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Notice verse 18, great verse to memorize. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's a great attitude adjustment, Christian. We all suffer. Life is not fair, and it's certainly not easy. But if you keep the perspective that whatever the suffering is you're going through now, it doesn't even measure up to belong in the same sentence with the comparison of the glory that's coming. It's not even worthy to be mentioned. Didn't even get an honorable mention. Verse 19, notice, as a result. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Remember, we are now sons of God, but it doth not yet appear. But one day, when he appears, we will also appear, the full manifestation. So this is pointing to the second coming. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. What creature is he talking about? Well, all of them. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the firstfruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. 
And so here I am. And Romans 8 has never been truer. I groan within myself thinking, I can't wait for that day where all the corruption is put down and all the evil and all the attacks and all the blatant wickedness that has had free reign for a time is going to be put down. And God from eternity past had everything perfect and then sin entered into the picture and life went into a giant cycle, a big circle, and for 7,000 years, sin is contained in what the songwriter calls the ever-circling life. And then once it's dealt with and once it's over, we're going to go on into eternity like we never missed a beat. Because time, as we understand it, is just that 7,000-year period. But from eternity past until eternity future, there's a blip in the radar. It was called sin. And God contained it in planet Earth. And he's going to deal with it. And he's going to move on only with those who say, I'm in. Sign me up. God doesn't force any of you in. You got to sign up. You got you to do it willingly. The voice cries out in the streets and he offers to you. He says, hey, how long will you love simplicity? How long will you hate knowledge? How long will you reject what I have to say? How long will you continue to say, well, maybe that's interesting, maybe tomorrow? Well, that's fine. That is fine. And you have the freedom to say that. But maybe tomorrow said today is the cash equivalent of no thank you today. Right? God forbid that the end comes on somebody who's waiting for tomorrow to make up their mind. And the story of Christmas And the story of it came upon a midnight clear is that God loves us. He brought this message and recurringly invites us, recurringly invites us to know that he has all the answers. He offers to you the free gift of eternal life. What do you have to do to get in on it? Well, it's very simple. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You simply confess to God that his story is the right story. I am a sinner. I know that. My way is not working out too good. I confess to you, Lord, my sinfulness. I ask you, Lord, to forgive me of my sins. I can't do it. Give me the free gift of eternal life. I surrender my life to your control and lordship. And that's what I want to do. And as a result, man, receive that free gift. Become a new creature, even though I don't look any different. I am new. And I am a son of God today and I start to learn more about him and serve him and walk with him and make the reality a little bit more real every day, but one day it's going to be so real. Wow. So if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes, I just want to ask if anybody here wants to receive that.